0: Good morning. If you were to look back at the last 150 years, what would you say is the one technological advancement that has changed the church the most? So I want to actually pause for a minute. If you're listening by yourself, there's going to be some silence here. But if you're in the house to house, I want you to pause and actually discuss that question for a moment. And then we'll come back and continue. I'm gonna welcome you back. And there's lots of things that could have been said to answer that question. Uh, Some of them could have been electricity. I mean, think about how much that had an impact on so much of the world. It could have been more modern examples, like the telephone or the iPhone, the smartphone, social media, all of those that are technological advances that have and are still to this day dramatically impacting our life as a church. But I want to focus on one of them for a moment that I think um, may not have been said that may have been lost. In my opinion, one of the most, if not the most, is the automobile. That's right, the car. Uh, This completely changed the makeup of how our society was structured, but as a result, it also affected how we look at church. The church gathering used to be a place in your neighborhood. There was parishes that you would walk to and it would be part of the community. But now with automobiles, you had parts of society like suburban context that were being built in droves so people could remove themselves from an urban context and drive into the city and create this little comfort-oriented place. But the car also changed how we experienced the life of the church. You no longer were bound to be part of the people of God that was geographically closest to you. You could get up and go elsewhere. Now, if you take that and you blend it with the consumerism that has fueled our world for so long. I mean, you people competing with one another, these are good things, but we'll see that they possibly, in my opinion, Have become God things. They become an idolatrous thing. And so you take consumerism, people that are driven by what's what's in it for them. They they can put money into something and get something out of it. And if they don't like the experience, they don't like the commodity, they take it and they go elsewhere. And so those, uh, think of it like restaurants, as from the restaurant industry, this rings home for me. You have a restaurant that's fighting for them, so they're, they're adding commodities, they're, they're making their menu better, they're doing their services better than the other, because, and then they become in competition with one another. Because you're not forced to go somewhere that's close to you, you now are able to go elsewhere. I believe that that um, mixture of transportation and consumerism radically changed the church. And it's the water that you and I swim in as fish today. We don't even realize it, but it's so deeply embedded in everything we do. And so what ended up happening is it started to change the church rather than being the people of God being formed um, by the gospel so that they can be missionaries in their world. It started to change to, uh, well, how do we get people in the door? And getting people in the door became a consumeristic type thing. You, we as church leaders are now responsible to provide the best religious goods and services possible. We're going to have the best youth ministry. We're going to have dynamic teaching, the best music possible. Because we're trying to grow the influence and impact of our body. And so, therefore, we're going to offer the best services so that those from all around can drive. And they're going to choose us rather than choose the church down the street. And I've been in circles where we, I've had church leaders like frustrated with this. And yet, so often we are the ones that are continuing that cycle. We're, we're doing things so that in our gathering, people feel that they're getting it so that they don't go elsewhere. They, we want to provide an experience, an environment, uh, a meal, if you will, and then if you, as a disciple, aren't getting fed, then you can just go. You just choose to go elsewhere. If you're not what getting what you want out of it, and underneath this and all around it, there's this motive about what's in it for me. What's in it for me? Is it good for me? Is it good for my family? Am I being fed? Am I being pushed or challenged or developed or taught? Whatever it is your motivation, the focal point is me. Churches now compete like restaurants fighting for consumption rather than as families looking to serve their community. And let me be very, very clear. Comfort and the desire isn't bad. To be comforted is good. To want comfort, to want goodness, to want to be built up. Those are good, good things. But if any good thing becomes a primary thing, that's what the Bible calls idolatry. It's when something that's good takes over something else that God has declared as ultimate and when we take that good thing and make it the focal point of everything that we're trying to do that's needing of repentance. You know, think about comfort. It blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. You and I are designed to be comforted. Now, our comfort is to be sourced in God. Unfortunately, this environment is created a desire in us to be comforted by our environment more than our creator. And so this comfort we are to receive, uh, we are to be built up, we are to be encouraged. This what's in it for me, the goal of that, the healthy goal of that I should say, is that it should outflow or overflow from our heart to other people. If you don't have comfort from the Spirit, if you are doing mission out of obligation, if you don't have love for and from Jesus as the source, if you're not blown away by the grace that Jesus has given us, if you're not driven by His love for you, and out of that, you want others to know if that's not your motivation, then you need to be comforted. You are in need. That's a good thing to recognize because mission is an outflow of our love. But so much of our lives and so much of the church in our day is around a self-centered approach to gathering. What's in it for me? What am I gonna get out of it? Am I getting what I need? We've, now, we like to think that this is unique to us, but in reality, it's not. This same heartbeat is what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In many ways, they are fighting to be heard. They are not only looking to be comforted, but they are trying to show off their gifts, They want others to look at me, look at me, look how spiritual I am, look at the state of spirituality I have attained. And so their gatherings were to show off and showcase rather than to build up their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 goes about giving them three antidotes to their self-centered gatherings. And so we're going to briefly look at those in our remaining time. The first antidote to a self-centered gathering is orderliness. Orderliness. For the church in Corinth, they were experiencing a chaotic gathering. They had people using their gifts and they were talking over one another. They were lacking intelligibility. They weren't building one another up. And that was the whole purpose of the gathering. And so what Paul does is there's three different groups that he instructs to be silent so that the purpose of building up the body of Christ is experienced. The first group is those that are speaking in tongues. This is what it says in verse 28. Um, After he says, uh, let's start in verse 27. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. So there is a a momentary silence for that person. What you're going to do is not going to build up the body, so don't do it, tongue speaker. But it's also those that speak in prophecy. Verse thirty. if something has been revealed, oh, verse 29, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate or weigh it as the ESV says but if something has been revealed to another person sitting there the first person or the first prophet should be silent for if one can pro- um all, for you can all prophesy one by one so that you may learn and everyone may be encouraged that's the purpose of the gathering these gifts were to build up the body. And so when the body was not being built up, when an individual was not using their gifts for somebody else, when they were using it for themselves, Paul instructs them to be silent momentarily for the time, not universally, so that others can be built up. There's a third group that Paul instructs here that in our day... This passage has been used very, very controversially. I'm not gonna dive extremely deep right here in this time. I put together a teaching video that unpacks these few verses, how in many manuscripts they change locations. Some people think that this isn't in the original text. There's a lot here. So if you want a deeper dive into this, I am encouraging you to go there. But this, the third group of people is women. Verse 34, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves as the law says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their husbands at homes, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Okay, obviously, big, bold statements. This is what I'm going to submit to you. Paul uses the same term silent in each of these cases. None of them are in, to be universally submission. It's commonly understood by most commentators that these um, the women that he's speaking to were bro- probably disruptive. They were speaking out of their place in the relational dynamic of what was happening. And so he was saying, hey, this isn't for you to be silent else um, universally because, Prior in chapter 11, verse 5, he says, When women are to prophesy, here's the way that you do it. So he's, in one place, encouraging women to do it in a right way. And then all of a sudden, here he's saying it here. it's likely that this is a, a specific instruction to a specific group of people that are doing it disorderly, like those that are speaking in tongues and speaking in prophecy out of turn. So he's saying, not a universal, they are always to be silent. But the way in your, they're doing it and how um, they're doing it in this time is important to correct. None of them are to be in universal and, uh, statements of prohibition, but it's because the way in which they were doing it was not building other people up. This does not limit these gifts. Paul sells elsewhere to not prohibit speaking in tongues. He says that he wants everybody to prophesy um, he it says elsewhere, as I said in chapter eleven, verse five, that women are to prophesy, but he wants them to be put in their proper place. They're out of order, and he's trying to create orderliness of them. If the the women in this group were being disruptive and trying to to just ask questions out of they were they were not allowing it to be in place, then he's saying, hey, order yourself, put put it in the right context for that relationship, that conversation. Same with tongues and prophecy. So the first antidote to a self-centered gathering is orderliness. Not only thinking about me and using my gifts the way I want to, but it leads to the second thing. This is self-control for other-centeredness. Centered, self-control for other-centeredness. This is what it says in verse 31. For Um, One can all prophesy, or for you can prophesy, one by one, so that everyone may learn, and everyone may be encouraged. And then it says this in verse 32. The prophets, the spirits, are subject to the prophets. So here we have Paul saying, notice that Paul is being very clear That this is not some trance-like state when you're either speaking in tongues or giving a prophecy. There is willful volition. There's agency in being able to use this gift in a right way. So Paul is saying, hey, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. That means that you have control over your gifts. So don't just start throwing it out willy-nilly as if you can't control it. Control yourself. But control yourself so that other people are built up. That's what he's going after. The purpose of the gathering is so that the body of Christ may be built up. All of them may learn. All of them may grow. So we need to limit our gifts in cases so that others can be built up. I'm going to use my skill set and my gift as an example when it comes to preaching and teaching we were for a time doing 45 minute sermons and some of that was because we had the time and there was a lot to say but the the preaching of God's word it plays such an important and pivotal role in the gathering of the saints but it's not the only role it can't be the only role And So why I've tried to limit our times here is so that during your conversations, you can have more conversation. So that there can be music, so there can be others that use their gift. You can mutually build one another up during communion. As we move forward, I hope that that's the continued case. That our gathering is not just around the sermon, although the sermon plays such an important role. It's not only that we have to exercise self-control and use them less so that others could be built up when the necessary is. I don't know what that looks like for you. You actually may not need to speak less, you may need to speak up more. When we have evidence of God's grace, when we have stories of saturation, when we have opportunities for conversation within the midst of our gatherings, for dialogue, you may have something that you wanna say that could build up others, but you feel concerned to say it. Your self-centeredness is out of fear, rather than as it is in Corinth, out of um, ego. What the correction for all of us is, what can be done to build up the body of Christ? So first antidote for self-centeredness is orderliness, the second one is self-control, and the third one is God's character. Because God's character determines the gathering's character this is what it says in verse 33. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And many people would actually say that this next part of, as in all the churches of the saints, is actually part of verse 33. Look at the teaching video to understand that. So I also believe that this is why in the a whole portion of ordering the body around the gathering, so chapters twelve to chapter fourteen, right smack dab in the middle of it, is love, because it focuses that God is love, um, God is patient, love does not envy, it is not boastful, and who it, God is, those things. So that character that God exemplifies is to be the the driving force, the the centerpiece, the middle of what our gatherings are to be like. So if God is a God of peace, are our gatherings exemplifying that peace? If God is a God of order and not disorder, then our gatherings should exemplify that. But let's bring in verse uh, chapter 13. If God is love, then I should, we should be able to ask the question, do our gatherings provide an environment where God's love can be experienced and expressed. Is love a driving force in our gatherings? Not just learning, although learning is here, but love, these are the ways in which we build up. These are the ways in which we build others up. We look to the character of God. And if we want to sacrifice, if we want self-control, look at Jesus, who the perfect picture of self-control, that he emptied himself as Philippians 2, and he took on human flesh in John 1. That he went to the cross and he said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. He submitted himself to the will of the triune God and took on death on the cross for you and me as the ultimate expression of love and sacrifice. And in his life, he says, take up your cross and follow me. So when we look at and we think about sacrifice and we think about self-control if we think of God's character, We look to Jesus, and He is the one that now fills us and motivates us to do the things that we need to do. So, a few questions for us in closing. Are you in need of building up? Are you lacking motivation for life? Are you missing love for Jesus and finding yourself in need? The goal of this is to not go find another quote-unquote restaurant, but it's to lean into your brothers and sisters in Christ so that they, through their gifts, can build you up. It's through that relational connection, not just your logical growth, that you are built up and grown. And that's a good thing to need. If you're in need of that, then gathering with the saints, building life in with your missional community, expressing your need is a good thing. Are you, secondly, are you part of the church but you don't think you have much to offer? Or do you think it's, your job is to sit down, stay quiet, and let the quote unquote "professionals do the work of ministry. Brothers and sisters, we're all needed here. We all need to be built up. We're all needed so that others are built up, whether it's in our missional community or our corporate church gathering, And we're all equipped with the Spirit of God to do the work. It's not just people like me. It's all of us, every single one of us, even if it's behind the scenes, which I will say, brothers and sisters, we need more of in SOMA federal way. People that love to get in the details and work organization and, and structure and all that. We desperately, desperately need that. We're hurting as a church because we don't have that. So that may be you and you need to, act instead of sitting back, you may need to lean in. And lastly, are you looking at church, are you looking at the gathering solely for you? Not for the glory of Jesus. Not for the building up of the body. Not for the good of our city. Do you see this, as we like to say, as the locker room? Where yes, we want to motivate. Yes, we want to inspire. Yes, we want to point one another to Jesus so that his love comfort, and grace can be experienced in our lives, but overflowing out of our lives to the lost. There's thousands of people that don't know Jesus, that desperately need him. And they need a people that have been changed by him, that exercise um, self-control, that are ordered in their gathering so that they can be built up. And as we are built up, as we collectively reflect the image of Jesus, we can go share the gospel with the world that desperately needs it. So I don't know if you need comfort. I don't know if you need encouragement. I don't know if you're needing repentance. But as you connect and converse as a house-to-house gathering or in your family, I pray that the Spirit would enliven His life in you. He would lead and guide you and direct you and direct us as a church family into the gatherings in which we can start doing as we begin corporately gathering weekly starting September 12th and in our missional communities in everyday life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you did not think first of what's in it for me. Jesus, you thought what's in it for them. You willingly laid down your life for us so that we can become children of God. God, that you exercised self-control. You didn't run away from the cross, but you said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And Jesus, you ultimately showed us what God is like. And so I pray, Jesus, that you are building us up, giving us a deep love for you that we need so that we can share that grace, share that love with a world that's desperately in need. So Father, we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.